Book Fourth, Chapter Ten of Ben Hur by Lou Wallace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Ten. Beyond the village, the country was undulating and cultivated. In fact, it was the garden land of Antioch, with not a foot lost to labor. The steep faces of the hills were terraced. Even the hedges were brighter of the trailing vines which, besides the lure of shade, offered passers-by sweet promises of wine to come and grapes in clustered purple ripeness. Over melon patches and through apricot and fig-tree groves and groves of oranges and limes the whitewashed houses of the farmers were seen, and everywhere Plenty, the smiling daughter of peace, gave notice by her thousand signs that she was at home, making the generous traveler merry at heart, until he was even disposed to give Rome her dues. Occasionally, also, views were had of Taurus and Lebanon, between which, a separating line of silver, the Orontes placidly pursued its way. In course of their journey the friends came to the river, which they followed with the windings of the road, now over bold bluffs and then into vales, all alike allotted for country seats, and if the land was in full foliage of oak and sycamore and myrtle, and bay and arbutus, and perfuming jasmine, the river was bright with slanted sunlight, which would have slept where it fell but for ships in endless procession, gliding with the current, tacking for the wind, or bounding under the impulse of oars, some coming, some going, and all suggestive of the sea and distant peoples, and famous places, and things coveted on account of their rarity. To the fancy there is nothing so winsome as a white sail seaward blown, unless it be a white sail homeward bound, its voyage happily done. And down the shore the friends went continuously till they came to a lake fed by backwater from the river, clear, deep, and without current. An old palm tree dominated the angle of the inlet. Turning to the left at the foot of the tree, Malik clapped his hands and shouted, Look, look, the orchard of palms! The scene was nowhere else to be found unless in the favored oases of Arabia or the Ptolemanian farms along the Nile. And to sustain a sensation new as it was delightful, Ben-Hur was admitted into a tract of land apparently without limit and level as a floor. All underfoot was fresh grass, in Syria the rarest and most beautiful production of the soil. If he looked up, it was to see the sky, palely blue through the groinery of countless date-bearers, very patriarchs of their kind, so numerous and old, and of such mighty girth, so tall, so serried, so wide of branch, each branch so perfect with fronds, plumy and wax-like and brilliant, they seemed enchanters enchanted. Here was the grass coloring the very atmosphere, there the lake, cool and clear, rippling but a few feet under the surface, and helping the trees to their long life in old age. Did the grove of Daphne excel this one? 
and the palms, as if they knew Ben-Hur's thought and would win him after a way of their own, seemed, as he passed under their arches, to stir and sprinkle him with dewy coolness. The road wound in close parallelism with the shore of the lake, and when it carried the travelers down to the water's edge, there was always on that side a shining expanse limited not far off by the opposite shore, on which, as on this one, no tree but the palm was permitted. See that? said Malik, pointing to a giant of the place. Each ring upon its trunk marks a year of its life. Count them from root to branch, and if the sheikh tells you the grove was planted before the Seleucidae were heard of in Antioch, do not doubt him. One may not look at a perfect palm tree, but that, with a subtlety all its own, it assumes a presence for itself, and makes a poet of the beholder. This is the explanation of the honors it has received, beginning with the artists of the first kings, who could find no form in all the earth to serve them so well as a model for the pillars of their palaces and temples, and for the same reason Ben-Hur was moved to say, As I saw him at the stand today, good Malik, Sheikh Ildrim appeared to be a very common man. The rabbis in Jerusalem would look down upon him, I fear, as a son of a dog of Eden. How came he in possession of the orchard? And how has he been able to hold it against the greed of Roman governors? If blood derives excellence from time, son of Arius, that is Alderim a man, though he be an uncircumcised Edomite. Malik spoke warmly. All his fathers before him were sheikhs. One of them, I shall not say when he lived or did the good deeds, once helped a king who was being hunted with swords. The story says he loaned him a thousand horsemen who knew the paths of the wilderness and its hiding places as shepherds know the scant hills they inhabit with their flocks. And they carried him here and there until the opportunity came, and then with their spears they slew the enemy and set him upon his throne again. And the king, it is said, remembered the service and brought the son of the desert to this place, and bade him set up his tent and bring his family and his herds for the lake and trees and all the land from the river to the nearest mountains where his and his children's forever, and they have never been disturbed in the possession. Two rulers succeeding have found it policy to keep good terms with the tribe, to whom the Lord has given increase of men and horses and camels and riches, making them masters of many highways between cities, so that it is with them any time they please to say to commerce, go in peace or stop, and what they say shall be done. Even the prefect in the citadel overlooking Antioch thinks it happy day with him when Ilderim surnamed the generous on account of good deeds done unto all manner of men with his wives and children and his trains of camels and horses and his belongings of sheikh moving as our fathers abraham and jacob moved comes up to exchange briefly his bitter wealth for the pleasantness you see about us how is it then said ben-hur who had been listening unmindful of the slow gait of the dromedaries I saw the sheik tear his beard while he cursed himself that he had put trust in a Roman. Caesar, 
had he heard him, might have said, I like not such a friend as this. Put him away. It would be but shrewd judgment, Malik replied, smiling. Ilderim is not a lover of Rome. He has a grievance. Three years ago the Parthians rode across the road from Bozra to Damascus and fell upon a caravan laden, among other things, with the incoming tax returns of a district over that way. They slew every creature taken, which the censors in Rome could have forgiven if the imperial treasure had been spared and forwarded. The farmers of the taxes, being chargeable with the loss, complained to Caesar, and Caesar held Herod to payment, and Herod, on his part, seized property of Ilderim, whom he charged with treasonable neglect of duty. The sheikh appealed to Caesar, and Caesar has made him such answer as might be looked for from the unwinking sphinx. The old man's heart has been aching sore ever since, and he nurses his wrath and takes pleasure in its daily growth. He can do nothing, Malak. Well, said Malak, that involves another explanation which I will give you, if we can draw nearer. But see, the hospitality of the sheikh begins early. The children are speaking to you. The dromedary stopped, and Ben-Hur looked down upon some little girls of the Syrian peasant class who were offering him their baskets filled with dates. The fruit was freshly gathered, and not to be refused. He stooped and took it, and as he did so, a man in the tree by which they were halted cried, Peace to you, and welcome! Their thanks said to the children, the friends moved on at such gait as the animals chose. You must know, Malik continued, pausing now and then to dispose of a date, that the merchant Simonides gives me his confidence, and sometimes flatters me by taking me into counsel, and as I attend him at his house, I have made acquaintance with many of his friends who, knowing my footing with the host, talk to him freely in my presence. In that way I became somewhat intimate with Sheikh Ilderim. For a moment Ben-Hur's attention wandered. Before his mind's eye there arose the image, pure, gentle, and appealing, of Esther, the merchant's daughter. Her dark eyes, bright with the peculiar Jewish luster, met his in modest gaze. He heard her step as when she approached him with the wine, and her voice as she tendered him the cup and he acknowledged to himself again all the sympathy she manifested for him, and manifested so plainly that words were unnecessary, and so sweetly that words would have been but a detraction. The vision was exceeding pleasant, but upon his turning to Malik it flew away. A few weeks ago, said Malik, continuing, the old Arab called on Simonides and found me present. I observed he seemed much moved about something, and, in deference, offered to withdraw, but he himself forbade me. As you are an Israelite, he said, stay, for I have a strange story to tell. The emphasis on the world Israelite excited my curiosity. I remained, and this is, in substance, his story. I cut it short, because we are drawing nigh the tent and I leave the details to the good man himself. A good many years ago, three men called at Ilderim's tent out in the wilderness. 
They were all foreigners, a Hindu, a Greek, and an Egyptian, and they had come on camels, the largest he had ever seen, and all white. He welcomed them and gave them rest. Next morning they arose and prayed a prayer new to the sheikh, a prayer addressed to God and his son, this with much mystery besides. After breaking fast with him, the Egyptian told who they were and whence they had come. Each had seen a star, out of which a voice had bidden them go to Jerusalem and ask, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? They obeyed. From Jerusalem they were led by a star to Bethlehem, where, in a cave, they found a child newly born, which they fell down and worshipped, and after worshipping it and giving it costly presents and bearing witness of what it was, they took to their camels and fled without pause to the sheikh, because if Herod, meaning him surnamed the Great, could lay hands upon them, he would certainly kill them. And Faithful to his habit, the sheikh took care of them and kept them concealed for a year when they departed, leaving with him gifts of great value and each going a separate way. It is indeed a most wonderful story, Ben-Hur exclaimed at its conclusion. What did you say they were to ask at Jerusalem? They were to ask, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Was that all? There was more to the question, but I cannot recall it. And they found the child? Yes, and worshipped him. It is a miracle, Malik. Ilderim is a grave man, though excitable as all Arabs are. The lie on his tongue is impossible. Malik spoke positively. Thereupon the dromedaries were forgotten, and, quite as unmindful of their riders, they turned off the road to the growing grass. Has Ilderim heard nothing more of the three men? asked Ben-Hur. What became of them? Ah, yes, that was the cause of his coming to Simonides, the day of which I was speaking. Only the night before that day the Egyptian reappeared to him. Where? Here, at the door of the tent to which we are coming. How knew he the man? As you knew the horses today by face and manner. By nothing else? He rode the same great white camel and gave him the same name, Balthasar, the Egyptian. It is a wonder of the Lord's. Ben-Hur spoke with excitement, and Malik, wondering, asked, Why so? Balthasar, you said? Yes, Balthasar, the Egyptian. That was the name the old man gave us at the fountain today. Then, at the reminder, Malik became excited. It is true, he said. And the camel was the same, and you saved the man's life. And the woman, said Ben-Hur, like one speaking to himself. The woman was his daughter. He fell to thinking, and even the reader will say he was having a vision of the woman, and that it was more welcome than that of Esther, if only because it stayed longer with him, but no— Tell me again, he said presently. 
Were the three to ask, where is he that is to be the king of the Jews? Not exactly. The words were, born to be king of the Jews. Those were the words as the old sheikh caught them first in the desert, and he has ever since been waiting the coming of the king, nor can anyone shake his faith that he will come. How? As king? Yes, and bringing the doom of Rome, so says the sheikh. Ben-Hur kept silent a while, thinking and trying to control his feelings. The old man is one of many millions, he said slowly. One of many millions, each with a wrong to avenge, and this strange faith, Malik, is bread and wine to his hope. For who but a Herod may be king of the Jews while Rome endures? But, following the story, did you hear what Simonides said to him? If Ilderim is a grave man, Simonides is a wise one, Malik replied. I listened, and he said, but hark, someone comes overtaking us. The noise grew louder, until presently they heard the rumble of wheels mixed with the beating of horse-hoofs. A moment later Sheik Ilderim himself appeared on horseback, followed by a train, among which were the four wine-red Arabs drawing the chariot. The Sheik's chin, in its muffling of long white beard, was drooped upon his breast. Our friends had out-traveled him, but at sight of them he raised his head and spoke kindly. Peace to you. Ah, my friend Malik, welcome, and tell me you are not going, but just come, that you have something for me from the good Simonidas? May the Lord of his fathers keep him in life for many years to come? I take up the straps, both of you, and follow me. I have bread in Laban, or, if you prefer it, Arak, and the flesh of young kid. Come. They followed after him to the door of the tent, in which, when they were dismounted, he stood to receive them, holding a platter with three cups filled with creamy liquor just drawn from a great smoke-stained skin bottle pendant from the central post. Drink, he said heartily. Drink, for this is the fear not of the tent men. They each took a cup and drank till but the foam remained. Enter now in God's name. And when they were gone in, Malik took the sheik aside and spoke to him privately, after which he went to Ben-Hur and excused himself. I have told the sheik about you, and he will give you the trial of his horses in the morning. He is your friend. Having done for you all I can, you must do the rest, and let me return to Antioch. There is one there who has my promise to meet him tonight. I have no choice but to go. I will come back tomorrow prepared, if all goes well in the meantime, to stay with you until the games are over. With blessings given and received, Malik set out in return. End of chapter 10